The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer, and this is the 10th of 10 podcasts in our AI failure series. So um, if you've been listening to our AI Today podcast over the past several months, actually, that we've been doing this, we've been talking about some of the the things you may be hearing in the news and perhaps from from others in the industry that that a lot of AI projects are failing. They have a very high failure rate, uh, according to the, uh, the the common press. When people are saying, and that's certainly not false. I mean, that is true. <laughs> in that, in many cases, these AI projects that people set about to start, they're trying to solve any of a number of problems. We go into that, by the way, in other episodes, uh, podcast episodes. We talk about all the different kinds of problems people are trying to solve with AI. And if this is your first podcast, if this is the very first AI Today podcast you're hearing, you should know, hey, first of all, there are nine other episodes in this particular series. But in general, we have over 230 some odd episodes that we've been doing for the last four years. This is our fifth season now going into five years of doing AI Today. And the typical thing that we do on AI Today, if if you're not listening to the failure series, is we usually talk about AI successes. So we're not like, uh, you know, pessimists or anything like that. We do believe and we have actually seen AI be successful in many cases. And we have interviewed many people who have been successful with AI in the in large businesses, in government agencies, in organizations across the world, from in technology companies and, and everybody. And, and generally, the kinds of things we talk about are the situations where they have been successful, not even necessarily talking about the possibilities. We're talking, you know, this is AI today. So we talk about AI happening today, you know, not in the future, right? There are other podcasts, great ones, by the way, uh, that we have actually interviewed some of the hosts for those podcasts where they do talk about AI future, right? But in this podcast, we've always talked about what's happening today. And so as a, as a result, in this particular series, we talk about the failures, but of course, we would like to highlight all the other podcasts that we have done it on all sorts of topics. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we all, we think it's important to have a variety of different podcasts. So we did a big AI use case series podcast about how AI is being applied in various different industries. We've done an AI education series podcast as well. Um, But we wanted to do an AI failure series because, you know, as Ron said, not a lot of people talk about failures and you can learn just as much, if not more from failures as you can from successes, because, you know, you want to find out why other people, um, what, mistakes they've made. So you hopefully do not make them yourself as well. And so we have spent, you know, this is our 10th podcast. So we spent nine other podcasts in this series, of course, (laughs) yes, in this series, talking about reasons for AI project failures, common themes, common reasons that we have seen. Um, And we distill that in each podcast. So, uh, you know, some of the topics and the reasons for AI failures is that AI projects are not like traditional software development projects. So if you're running them like that, you'll quickly realize that, um, you know, it's not going to work. You're going to find out the hard way that it doesn't work that way. And so we are advocates for best practices, methodologies, including CPMAI methodology for doing AI projects, right? Also, we had an AI failure series podcast on ROI and how the ROI, the return on investment is not justified by the project. And we go into various details on what that means. We also went uh, in pretty great detail on the AI go, no go. We said it's like a traffic light and you really should have all nine questions in that AI go, no go um, green and means yes, so that you can move forward. And then we talked about how the time between pilot to production for many AI projects is just way too long. And, you know, don't be surprised if it's, you know, 18, 24 months period that your project is not going to be successful. We also talked about data quantity issues. So how much how much data you know, do you really need? Also, a lack of data understanding in general can, can lead to um, AI project failures. And data quality, 
uh, we spend a lot of time, data is the heart of AI. And you want to make sure that you're training these systems with good, clean data. Uh, not all data is created the same. And so it's really important to understand that. And then we also talked about, uh, you know, making sure that you're really understanding what it is that you are buying and don't trust uh, you know, everything that you hear out in the market. There can be product mismatch. There can be some overhype, maybe an overpromising, overselling of what exactly, uh, you know, these solutions on the market can do. So make sure that you have an understanding of what your actual problem is and what these tools and solutions are solving and make sure that it's a, that it's not a mismatch. Uh, many times we see that it is unfortunately a mismatch, and that's why you know you didn't buy the right solution for the right problem that you're trying to solve. And then also, you know, building a model before you know how it's actually going to be used in the real world. We, are, as I mentioned, we are advocates for best practices methodologies, in particular CPMAI, the Cognitive Project Management for AI methodology. In this methodology, it, you know. It, like any methodology, it's a set of steps and guidelines that you can use. So in, in the methodology, we always say, you know, understand where and how your model is going to be used so that you can build it correctly. Um, when you rush forward with projects, sometimes people get so excited or they, 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 you know, they're getting pressure from upper management. There's a variety of different reasons why people move forward with projects when they're not quite ready. And if you build a model and you don't know how it's going to be used in the real world, you, you know, may run into issues and that's not okay. And so we, we talk about that in that podcast. Also, how AI project life cycles are continuous. So definitely understand that if you're going to set aside, you know, resources and budget and certain allocation for your AI project, understand that once you've built this model, it's not a set it and forget it. You're going to need to retrain this model. You're going to still need to have resources devoted to to this. So don't just kind of build it and forget it. We've seen that as uh, issues why projects fail. But today we wanted to talk about a really major reason why we've seen AI projects fail. And the number one reason why we see projects fail is over-promising and under-delivering on what it is that you know your AI solution can actually do. Yeah. So I know uh, Kathleen just you know, went through a lot just there. <laughs> and each one of those topics, as we mentioned earlier, are its own podcast. So we spend like, you know, 30, 40 minutes on each one of those things. So if you, as mentioned again, if this is the first time you're hearing some of those things and you want to dive deeper into the quality issues that are killing projects or quantity issues that are killing projects or some of these other things about running projects and pilots and things like that, you should definitely listen to all of them. And we're going to link every single one of those episodes in our show notes if you haven't heard it. One thing in addition to that that we're going to link, and this is sort of the sort of the lead into this particular failure mode, which is the overpromising and underdelivering of AI projects, is you may not be familiar with the history of AI and, and how AI is actually a fairly old concept. You know, we may be thinking that AI always, for whatever reason, AI is perpetually youthful. It's like this fountain of youth, like people continue to discover the ideas and the concepts of artificial intelligence, and it always feels like the future, right? And it is very futuristic, you know, machines that can think, machines that can do things without people telling them what to do, machines that can process the real world around them just like we can, machines that can deal with ambiguity, machines that can be agile and flexible and adaptive and can, and can connect ideas together and have creativity and all this sort of stuff. These are the, the fundamental ideas of AI. And we addressed that in our very, very first podcast and in some of our very early podcasts and uh, where we even talk about things like the AI winters. And if you're not familiar with the history of AI, you realize that we actually come to this very same place often. 
which is that in the 1950s and 60s, when the first wave of AI was possible and the glimmer of hope for AI was that we had computers, really usable computers for the very first time ever, right? Um, and I don't want to go too much into the history of computing, but as you may know, you know, the, after World War II and the Second World War, we started making use, actually during the war, of computers, but very specific computers to do specific things, like you know, break codes, you know, the, the break the Enigma machine codes at Bletchley Labs, or use computers to calculate trajectories of artillery and things like that, which in the past required actual people to to be calculators. We actually called people calculators, like here's my team of calculators and that's what they were doing and we wanted people to be doing computation and so we created these computers but of course alan turing and others who were sort of the beginnings of the digital computer movement said hey we can build generally programmable computers we don't need to build these single use machines they came up with from the field of mathematics and from the field of philosophy and from all these other fields this idea of 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 the computing machine and the fundamental tenets of logic right and they realized that computing systems could do these operations of logic ands and ors and nors and nands and 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 you can actually create very sophisticated behaviors the machines could do all sorts of interesting and complicated things just by combining these very basic units of on and off and the magic of switches that combine on and off things together and that is where people start to get really inspired to like huh if we can build computer logic that can do things like derive calculations and you know do all these sort of decision making well our brains are logical too so couldn't we if if we can sort of grasp in our hands this idea of computer logic maybe we can crack how the brain works and so it's not much of a leap here to go from the people who are the the beginnings of computing itself turing and all those folks to the beginnings of artificial intelligence. They were kind of birthed, honestly, at the same time. This idea of we can build computers that can do very you know, fundamental and mundane things, and we can build computers that can do these amazing things. And so that first wave of AI really came about from this notion that we can build these computers that can do these things. And this is the crazy part. If you go back and look at some of the videos and look at some of the film, you know, the old films, but they're now on YouTube um, of what people, (laughs) what people were doing during this first wave of AI, it's actually pretty impressive. We have uh, already the first facial recognition systems Mm -hmm. or really classifiers. They don't really recognize individual people, but they can say male versus female based on training with image data, which is crazy, right? We didn't have the internet. We didn't have databases. We had machines that could barely store kilobytes rather than, you know, let alone the petabytes or exabytes, whatever we're just storing right now. And so, um, but they were able to do amazing things. There's uh, the tortoises, uh, which could basically run around autonomously and detect each other and go back to their own charging station. And you look at that, you're like, oh man, to do that now would require like, you know, databases and cloud and like, you know, you know, these GPUs and CPUs are like, they did it with like transistors. Actually, transistors themselves were barely even invented. Back in the time, it's actually kind of—it's crazy and inspiring at the same time. Yes, it absolutely is. What happened? Why? Why are we not at the, the Jetsons? You know, why can't we realize the the smart computer? Because because something happened that all that promise ended up well not delivering on what we were expecting, right? Exactly. And so you know, we have talked about this in depth, and we'll link it in the show notes with AI Winters so that you can understand kind of what happened. You know, we had all of this uh, exciting, it was an exciting time. We had all of these great ideas, but at the end of the day, really, we didn't have enough compute power. We didn't have enough data. There were some, you know, fundamental things and we were over-promising and then under-delivering on what it is we could actually do. So yes, it was amazing that we could identify male versus female in images that it was shown, but you know, systems were incredibly complex. That was the perceptron, that the wires on that thing were <laughs> absolutely insane. So, you know, we really couldn't move forward and do much more and actually really um, provide on what it is that they were promising. And so that brought us to our first AI winner. 
And we have specific examples of what those overpromising were. We actually talk about that in our in our AI Winters podcast. But but basically, one of those things were like, you know, it was in the middle of the Cold War. And one of the things that we needed machines that we actually needed people to do was to be able to, you know, we were able to intercept cable, you know, uh, communication between, say, embassies and, say, the Soviet Union, you know, the great uh, <laughs> adversary of the United States in the, during the Cold War. But the problem was it was in Russian, of course. And so you needed to have Russian language analysts that would sit there and be able to understand what these um, cables meant. You know, a lot of times they weren't really secret. They were just, you know, things like you know, information. And, and people just wanted to keep up to date with whatever the information was. And it's not just the secret stuff, which spies would do. But of course, spies could probably speak the language. So it wasn't really that much of that of an issue. It was more the mundane things like reading the news and the press and keeping up to date with like, oh, look, there was some fire at some factory somewhere. And that may turn out to be very useful for some you know, intelligence purposes. So we're like, hey, machines, maybe we could train machines to understand text and to understand meaning. And actually, the very first um, natural language systems were built in the 1950s and 60s. As a matter of fact, one of the first chatbots was built in the 1960s, right? The Eliza chatbot, if you're not familiar with it. And but the thing is, is like so people started going on these very early promises They're like ah, machines can classify, understand text. So let's just, you know, the promise is let's make it do all the text. Let's make it understand all these things. And we will basically make a promise to our people that, yeah, machines will be able you know give it two years and machines will be able to process all the wires and and the cables and they'll be able to understand everything but of course there's that funny situation where you know they put the uh the russian language uh through through the system and it translated you know the uh the meat is rotten but the spirit is strong and actually the, the vodka is strong but actually that was like you know the flesh is willing but the spirit is weak or the yeah flesh is willing but the spirit is weak something like that or flesh is weak spirit is willing so like you know clearly you know you can't do word for word translation and we funny thing is we still have a lot of those nlp problems even even today right and there was that other situation with the um you know uh the cockpits, the, the jet exactly. planes, or you want to talk a little about that one? Sure. They're just so, more and more complicated, right? Right. You know, as aviation and airplanes started to become more sophisticated, they said, well, instead of having pilots have to do all of this, this work, you know, with all these levers and switches and buttons in the cockpit, why don't we make it voice in it? Uh, interactive so that all they need to do is speak and not have to worry about all of this stuff. But they quickly found that it just became way too complex. And like we said, there was inaccuracies with voice. So they weren't actually able to do that. And these are some examples of, you know, that early over-promising and under-delivering where the ideas were really grandiose or maybe not even that grandiose, but just saying, you know, this is what I want to do. But then when the, when you actually went down into building this, it became a lot harder than it appeared. And so they said, well, you know what, if it can be more accurate, faster, cheaper to do with humans, then let's do it that way rather than investing all of this money and time and resources, right? And not getting that ROI that they were hoping for. So that, you know, these are just a few of the examples as to that over-promising and under-delivering in the early days. Yeah. And, and actually what was happening was like, as we sort of were nearing sort of the end of the 60s and we were kind of getting into the uh, 1970s um, and there was all this money being poured into you know, AI projects, people started saying, OK, uh, promising all these things. We're starting to see these robots. You're starting to see these vision systems, natural language processing systems. When are we going to actually see you being able to deliver on all these uh, capabilities? And so. Uh, at the time in the 50s and 60s, the money for AI, the investment resources came primarily from governments, you know, obviously uh, defense <laughs> institutions, not just here in the US, but all over the world. And actually, most notably in the United Kingdom and in mm -hmm. France and, of course, in the Soviet Union and in Australia and in Japan and in all these places. Right. And and the governments were saying, well, this is not just like, you know, a free flowing, uh, you know, pipeline of money here. We need you need to show results. And so um, in 19, one of the things, two things kind of happened to basically downplay people's interest in AI at, in the 70s. First thing was uh, that um, we had uh, Seymour Papert, Marvin Minsky came out with a paper that basically talked about the perceptron and how it really was not really possible because we needed in order to do anything sophisticated, we need all of these layers. We can't just have one layer of neural nets. This is actually an idea that's going to come back, right? 
And we just couldn't physically do it. The computing was very primitive in the 1950s and 60s. And all the data that was needed to train those different layers was very complicated. And they're saying it just wasn't feasible. They didn't say it was impossible. They just said it wasn't feasible. And so that was one thing. The second thing you may know about is what's called the Light Hill Report. And that actually came out of the United Kingdom. It was a basically report that basically said that uh, the continued investment in artificial intelligence may not be justified, given the fact that a lot of the projects were so-called toy projects. That was sort of the term that they use, which is that these are great little demonstration uh, things that show really great and interesting things. But the moment we try to put them into practice, they fall apart. That's why they're called toys. They don't really, they, they can't stand up to the daily use. And between those things, we started to see the decline of interest and decline of promise. And by basically the mid 1970s, nobody was talking about AI anymore. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, that really, really put a decline in funding. And so if you don't have a decline in funding, you're not going to have the research that's needed to help move things forward. And that brought us to our first AI winter. And AI wasn't, you know, really talked about for a while. And then in the 1980s, it came back with the idea of expert systems. So, you know, we had uh, desktop computers now and people at work had access to desktop computers and you know they we as humans we talk about how we're not robotic we can't work 24 7 so during the evening hours these systems were not being used these computers and so they said well what can we do with this and you know they had access to uh to desktop computers that weren't being used all the time so this idea of the expert system came about and but if you have ever worked with an expert system or you know heard heard the history of it you'll know that they are brittle and that there were issues with expert systems and they you know weren't they were brittle they would break easily they weren't always as accurate as people would like so now in the 1980s, you know, what we did have was back from the 1960s, we had more compute power, right? So, you know, we were we were able to have that. And we had people that were at least familiar with working um, with computers because back in the 1960s, you know, it was not common for everybody to have a computer at their home or at their work. So now we had that. And then we also had the you know, advent of venture, venture capital, so that we were able to start investing in companies as well. So we were able, you know, we had more resources in the 1980s. Things were starting to look up. Uh, we created expert systems, but then said, uh, hold on. They maybe are over-promising and under-delivering on what they can do as well. Yeah. So, so real quick on that one, I mean, an expert system was just the idea that especially in certain areas of business where, where you'd have to make decisions about things like, should I, you know, what should I do about the supply chain situation? What should I do about how I'm allocating my drivers for some logistics thing? And back in the day, you'd ask an expert. That's why it's called an expert. So somebody like, well, I know how this should work. Um, and then, and then what they found is like, well, the theory was like, well, this person's just going through a series of, of logical steps. They're just thinking this through and they have access to data and we could build a system or systems that basically kind of follow those steps. So someone can basically train the system to, to follow the steps about how you make uh, purchasing decisions or how you make you know, decisions about the impact of weather on airline forecasting. I could build a system to do it. I don't want need those experts, you know, as people, I can basically build the experts as systems. That was a very hot idea. And 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 that combined with the movement from, from individual machines to server-based networks, we didn't have the internet yet. That didn't come until the mid-1990s, until the late 1990s, uh, and it became widespread. And if you recall, one of the big things that happened during the second wave of AI, because now people are like, AI, it's back. AI is back. But this time, we're not going to do AI with these crazy neural nets. Actually, neural nets were not hot during the 80s and 90s. They were kind of like, honestly, they were shunned for, for, for actually many decades. They were shunned. And they said, we're going to instead use these what are called symbolic approaches. We're going to use um, you know, uh, decision trees, and we're going to use uh, logical flows, and we're going to say we can derive intelligence as a as a as like a big like inference network where we can just take facts and derive facts from other facts and things like that. That was sort of the idea, right? 
Um, and during this wave, the sort of the culmination of all this was, you know, IBM's Deep Blue. They they said, well, you know, during the first wave, they solved the problem of computers being able to play checkers. And they thought, well, checkers is a basic game, but if you could teach a machine to play checkers and you could play against a computer and the computer can beat you, then that was a sign that there's some intelligence there. Well, that was the idea. But they're like, okay, well, checkers, that's nice. Ha ha. Uh, it's a basic thing. If you can teach a computer to play chess, now you're talking because chess is much more complicated. You had a very large series of, of possibility of moves. <laughs> you had you know, checkmates, you have legal moves, you have illegal moves, you have all sorts of stuff, right? Machines need to learn all those rules and need to know how to beat. And chess players are, you know, they're, they're a bright lot of people, right? So Deep Blue uh, in 1997 uh, beat the uh, reigning uh, chess champion, Gary Kasparov, in a series of very well-publicized things. And we're like, we are here. We're sort of like, we are here. Intelligence is here, right? And so we kind of went off the deep end again a little bit with AI. And we're like, well, think about all the things we can do. But by the late 1990s, even, even mm -hmm. like the, basically Deep Blue is near the end of that wave, mm -hmm. we're like... None of these things are going there. Expert systems are too brittle, as Kathleen mentioned. Uh, we're having, you can't generally, you know, transfer this idea of just because we know something from this domain, it doesn't really help. The chess machine was great at chess and it was not good at anything else. And even at chess, it was sort of like, you know, okay, and what? Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, mean? great, it can play a game of chess, but right. what is that doing for me with, you know, real world business issues that I have? Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> so, so what ended up happening is, of course, we also had the dot com crash and we had a, had a bunch of other things. And that just put the kibosh, you know, sort of like AI was put back to sleep. If you were a an AI researcher in 1999, your chances of getting funding or 2000 or 2002 was very low. And a lot of the people who are right now celebrated uh, as sort of like the luminaries we're probably not celebrated at all. You know, Jeff Hinton was, was hammering on neural nets since the 1980s, right? And, um, you know, it, it's only recently that, well, we'll talk about that. So here we are. So how did we get from AI again, not delivering on its promises to, wait a second, AI is amazing. And uh, something exactly. happened. Exactly, because we went into our second AI winter. So again, that's a period of decline in investment, in funding, in research, and therefore, you know, in use cases and applications and in, in new ideas and companies being created. So how did we go from the end of the 1990s, 2000s, you know, to suddenly where we are now, where we're like, oh my gosh, everybody talks about AI, everybody knows about AI, you know, where did we go? And there was a few things that are powering this current wave of artificial intelligence and, you know, what some people call the AI spring or the AI summer that we're in right now. And so one of that was, um, you know, we are we have tons of data. So now the internet's been created. We have tons of data and we know how to manage that big data as well. It's not just having that data, but it's knowing how to effectively manage that data. So that was one, one thing that has helped bring us here. The second is this idea of, you know, Ron had talked about, oh, neural nets. Sometimes, you know, we, in our, uh, training and education, we go through this idea that some people, some myths that people have is that neural nets are dead. And we talked about, well, in the 1960s, you know, we said we, we don't have enough to move forward, but no, neural nets are not dead and they are thriving and helped bring us into this current wave of AI. As Ron talked about Jeff Hinton, you know, we had this idea of um, this deep learning. And so we we said, wow, okay, look at what we can do with this. Oh my gosh, this is revolutionary. Look at all these applications. Some other things that helped push us here is that, again, you know, we we have uh, venture capital. And so we're having companies that are heavily funded and they are adopting artificial intelligence and really powering that and moving things forward. And companies are saying it's no longer, you know, one thing to just 
use AI, but they are saying, this is so important, we're AI first companies, or this is so important, this is a core part of our strategy. Many companies are doing this, lots of the fangs, the so-called fangs, and others as well. You know, you're starting to see this with even not those those incredibly large organizations, uh, you know, smaller ones too are saying, wow, this is really powerful. And yeah, one- I was going to say, and another thing that we got in this current wave is back in, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, we did have governments, as Ron mentioned, that were investing in this. And again, in the 80s and 90s. But in this current wave, one thing that's different is countries are saying, wow, I need to start paying attention. It's not just, you know, different various government groups that are investing in this. Uh, Like we said, defense, you know, has always heavily invested in this. But countries are saying this is so important. Artificial intelligence is so important. This is a core part to our country uh, moving forward, that they are coming up with country level strategies. At Cognolytica, we have covered the you know, how AI country level strategy adoption of artificial intelligence. I know that many of our podcast listeners also um, attend our various communities, including our AI and government community. And we've had various leaders from different governments across the world talk about how, you know, how and why artificial intelligence is so important. We recently had Albert King, who is the chief data officer for the Scottish government, he presented on Scotland's AI strategy, which they produced in uh, March of 2021. They published it officially in March. But, you know, we've had others as well, because it's so important that countries are saying countries of all sizes as well, you know, not just very, very large countries that, that you, you know, may think are always have a hand in this are saying this is so important. We really need to be thinking about this. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the there's a couple of of interesting things to unpack here about sort of where we are now with AI. Right. Clearly, this is a big data driven wave. Right. That was part of what Kathleen was talking about. We've talked about this actually in many of our podcast episodes going all the way. We talk about this all the time. And, and And the reason why we know it's a big data driven wave is because if you think about all the organizations that are leaders right now in AI, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, you know, Netflix, whatever, whatever. The thing that's really Amazon, I don't want to leave them out. You know, IBM, I can leave the. I don't want to leave anybody out. But like, you know, <laughs> it's all these companies. And the reason why we know it's big data driven is because those organizations are levering the power of lots of data to basically derive and find patterns from that data. And one could argue that the motivation for AI's use is primarily in handling what we have been, what everybody calls unstructured data, which is this data that, you know, we're great at databases. We solved that really well in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, going into the 2000s. It's sort of like we figured out how to do massively queryable databases distributed all around the world. You know, for a long time, it was structured queries and structured query language, SQL, SQL, you know, and the, the kings of that world, Oracle and companies like that, SAP, you know, they basically ruled the enterprise data, enterprise database, and that's a, a solved problem. But when we started moving into the 2000s, what changed was sort of the nature of data. First of all, in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have the internet. So all this stuff that's on the internet, images, video, text, messages, social media, websites, PDF, doc- we didn't even have, basically didn't even have PDF documents, honestly, in the 80s and 90s. We weren't sending PDFs. We were still sending faxes. for a very long time. I know. You know, I think it's a little bit of a derailment, but when you think about Back to the Future, it was like, what does the future look like for them? They have fax machines still. Yeah, that's right. You're fired, if I remember. (laughs) uh, To to the future. So so, um, the thing about all of that, which is weird because you also have video calls. So it's like, why would you have a fax to video call? But anyway, um, you know, so... That was the big thing that that was the big change. The big change was unstructured data, you know, uh, text, all that stuff, you know, video, images, audio, et cetera, et cetera. And not only was user generated content driving that, but also um, the, even even Amazon's entry was was driven by the fact that there's just like now they're selling basically an infinite number of products. And all of those products, you have to categorize them. They have to be searchable on the Amazon site. Some There's not a person there who's going to be like, okay, you know, somebody just uploaded some new shampoo. I have to basically tag it with like the, the thing and all the details about that 
that shampoo. That's a that's a lot of work if you think about it from a data preparation perspective. And they're like, is there a solution to all this stuff? Google is asking, can I basically use some sort of mechanism to derive patterns? Because I need to sell advertising and I need to have algorithms to help recommend YouTube videos. And Amazon's thinking, I need algorithms to help me basically classify my data. And also now I'm going to get into the server business. Now I got these cloud stuff. So now I need that for that. And Microsoft is like, and we're in this business too. And we got like office documents. We got, you know, all this sorts of stuff that they're doing in Microsoft. They're like, you know, out in the Merton, they're doing communications and everybody's out there. And they're saying, we need something to derive what we call the K level of D-I-K-U-W, the data information knowledge understanding and wisdom. We got data. That's our databases. We have information. That's our business intelligence systems. But what we don't have is we don't have knowledge. We can't derive the patterns. Miraculously, coincidentally, Jeff Hinton and his crew and the rest of the folks started being able to solve a problem in image recognition called, you know, there was an image net challenge, which was like uh, the classical problem for, for computer vision. It actually wasn't AI in general. It was very much specific to computer vision that said, we want computers to be able to recognize things in images. And if we could train machines to recognize things in images, it'll solve one of the the sticking areas of AI, right? Jeff Hinton and his crew said, hey, you remember those neural nets that we talked about before? Remember the 80s and 90s when I brought up things like back propagation and, and you know, uh, uh, feed forward networks and they were all innovating on that. Remember this guy, Jan LeCun, he was working in the 1990s, 90s, and this thing called convolutional neural nets. And, and well, all these things just started to come together because we're like, hey, we have big data. Google and Yahoo, remember those guys? They had tons of images. So we could actually train our systems on image data. We didn't, we didn't have like a, a data uh, sourcing problem, data quantity problem, right? We had a data quality issue. We had data labeling issues. And by the way, we still do, even in ImageNet. Um, but we were able to do it. And the magic was we hit some sort of critical threshold. The, the, um, these neural nets were able to perform at a remarkable level. And that's when ears started spinning, right? Everybody, you're like, wow, if this is possible, then anything is possible. I need uh, Amazon's like we're releasing the Alexa. We need our voice recognition systems to work. Apple's releasing Siri. They needed their voice recognition system to work. Microsoft's got Cortana. They got their recognition system to work. Google's got their Google Home Assistant. They got Google Voice. All of a sudden now we got NLP going on. We got computer vision going on. We got predictive analytics going on because people are making recommendations for the kind of content that you might be viewing. Therefore, maybe I can make recommendations for anything. I can build predictive analytics. I'm spotting patterns. Maybe I can spot patterns in bird songs. Maybe I can spot patterns and purchases. Maybe I can use AI for cybersecurity. This is kind of how we got here, right? And this is where we are right now. And the idea is that people get taken away on the story that like anything is possible now. We can basically make machines that can think and talk and do things like us. We are just an arm's length away from artificial general intelligence. Let's be scared. These super intelligences here, Elon Musk and all you like, we got to, we got to, we got to ratchet this thing down. This thing could go. And we're like, ho, 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 everybody. How did you go from we can recognize a dog and a cat in an image to the world's about to end, machines are going to go crazy? This is the overpromise and underdeliver. And there's something about AI that always gets us here. And I think this is one of those traps that we fall into so many times with our AI projects. And you might be thinking that, well, I'm not promising the world, but we're thinking, yes, let's talk about the robots at Walmart and Lowe's and SoftBank's Pepper and what's happening there and why did they fail, right? Exactly. You know, and I mean, we give it the reason that projects fail is not always, it's not just one of these things. It can be a, you know, a combination of many of these things. So, you know, we've talked about that example of robots roaming the store shelves and why aren't they there and why haven't we seen more adoption of that? Why haven't we seen robots in hotels? There were, you know, examples of robots delivering food, uh, being room service, or helping be, uh, helping, you know, bring uh, luggage or small items uh, from the lobby upstairs to your hotel room. And Pepper Robot, we were able to interview somebody in one of our previous podcasts from the Smithsonian. So the Smithsonian, uh, which is a museum in uh, Washington, D.C., it's a series of them. Uh, for some of their museums, 
said, let's introduce Pepper Robot and help engage with guests and help, you know, uh, bring Pepper to some of the less popular attractions in the museums so that we can draw a crowd there. And I know there were some supermarkets. uh, We had talked about this in a previous podcast, especially one in the UK that had Pepper Robot (laughs) at their stores. And it was not doing what it was intended to do. It ended up frightening the guests more than anything else. And it was not engaging with them. And, you know, Really, it was it was what was the return on investment there? What were you hoping to do? How was your data quality? And, you know, was it actually delivering some sort of sufficient return with the investment that you had spent in this? Because at the end of the day, you know, nothing comes for free. There's going to be resources that are needed for this, and there's going to be data that you need. You know, we talked about don't set it and forget it. You're going to constantly have to be retraining this, evaluating, making sure that it is doing what what you need to do. Could you have just put a human in front of an exhibit that you wanted to get more people to come to, and it would have maybe done just as good, if not better? So, you know, you have to say, okay, what what really is going on here? And were you over-promising with what it actually was that these systems that these robots were going to be able to do. And at the end of the day, you just under-delivered on that. And people said, you know what? Now I don't want this at all. Yeah. And one of the one of the other sort of examples that we come back to a lot in this failure series, because as mentioned, yeah, there is no single cause of failure sometimes. There's usually multiple causes, but you can always point to them. You can find them. So one of the examples we talked about is even the illustrious Andrew Ng, very successful, very well-known guy uh, who is a proponent of, of deep learning, You know, started Coursera and a bunch of things. Was at Baidu, was at Google, was at all these sorts of places, and you know, is really an industry luminary. Nobody really knows neural nets better than he does. You know, he's a, he's a real champion in all that sort of stuff. And yet he talks about how much the medical imaging uh, automate, trying to basically get machines to spot all sorts of stuff in medical images, how much of a failure that is so far, uh, being unable to be translated from their early success at Stanford's um, health to the general radiology clinics. And we go into the specifics. We're like, okay, well, let's not talk about the overpromise at the moment. We could say, well, some of it has to do with, they had an issue with like the proof of concept didn't match the pilot. So we talked about that's, that's an issue a lot. People try something in a very closed lab environment. doesn't work in the real world. We're like, well, you kind of duh to a lot of that because the real world is the real world. That's the problem you're trying to solve. You're not trying to solve the limited world. You're trying to solve the real world. And if you don't test in the real world, you're actually really not testing anything. Um, and then there's also issues of data quality. Clearly that was a part of the, the, the root cause there. Um, there are other issues in terms of even of, of understanding what kind of data was really needed. They, they clearly didn't do the early work to find out you know, what that is. And you might think, how can smart people like this make the same as make these mistakes? And that is actually where overpromise and underdeliver comes. It's not that somebody made a very specific promise that was not delivered. Sometimes it is. It's the implicit part of it, which is that why did they make those mistakes? Because in their mind, they're thinking about the promise. They're thinking, it's like everybody has that promise in their mind. Even though you may not say it, you're like, the promise is that machines will be able to be the new radiologists. The promise is that we could solve the problems that we're having with radiology, with people not being accurate, with missing things, with machines. That's the promise, right? That is what we have in our, right. in our mind. And what happens is we race towards that promise and we ignore a lot of the signs. Like we ignore those yellow traffic lights that we mm-hmm. talked about in the AI go, no, go. This is, yes, 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 yes. Okay, that's, you know, that's a great idea. The think big part, we'll talk about that in a moment. There's nothing wrong with thinking big. The problem is, is when you rush ahead towards that promise without realizing that that promise may be a bridge too far, that you may not be able to get to fully autonomous level five vehicles. This is another overpromise. We have Elon Musk and others basically promising something called full self-driving. How many bridges do we need to cross figuratively and literally <laughs> to get to level five? Nobody talks about that. Well, said it may take 20 years to get there. What if I say, well, never hundred. I know. Who knows? And and they might say, well, okay, anyway. I was going to say this also, you know, you have to look back and, and say, you know, have we been here before? How do we avoid this? Ron brought up the example of a checker playing bot, you know, and, and we had that in the 1950s and we said, okay, well, if you can do checkers, then we can do chess. Let's do chess. And then, all right, we were able to successfully, 
you know, beat a grandmaster at chess. Well, now, okay, now that means, look, we're great at playing games. Let's use autonomous vehicles like a game and we're going to get to level five autonomous vehicles. And it's like, whoa, 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 hold on, right? And this can be some of that over-promising and then under-delivering. So you say, well, look at what we did. And this is the same idea with medical imaging, where with a really, you know, up-to-date modern system with good, clean, well-labeled data, you're able to have an AI system accurately look at radiology images and say, this, this looks, you know, suspicious. We need to get a radiologist on this. But when you move that to a different hospital that doesn't have systems that are as up to date, maybe doesn't have as crisp images, you know, maybe doesn't have as great data, who knows what, what the issue is. You're not able to do that. And so you need to start from scratch again. And this is that whole idea of look at the big picture, say, what can we do and make sure that we're delivering on the entire thing and not just saying, well, in this one niche case, look at what we can do. Look at how awesome we are here. And it's like, well, yes, of course, but that's not exactly, you know, where the real world, uh, where, where the majority of things are. And so please don't forget about that which is why you should follow a best practices methodology for doing AI right so that you are looking at all of these issues. Because if you don't, you can ha- you can run into, a lo- I mean, a lot of the failures that we've seen and that we've talked about in the past 10 podcasts on our AI failure series. Yeah. So this is, this is really actually, honestly, this is an overarching problem because I think it's sort of, this sort of underlies a lot of our reasons. The reason why we are so interested in the, um, you know, the idea of, of autonomous machines like Walmart or Lowe's, it's like, we can't blame them. They, you know, having bots, you know, being able to do inventory and all this sort of stuff. That's a really cool idea, but, but nobody sits down and says like, well, what if I told you we may be 10 years away from that? Well, that doesn't mean don't invest in it. What that means is that this the, this mantra that we keep saying and that others keep saying, which is think big. It's okay to have a big goal. You want to land people on Mars. You want to get people to Mars. But it's interesting how Elon Musk is not saying, okay, I'm promising SpaceX will get us to Mars tomorrow. No, he's saying we need to do these steps to get there. First, we need to get the Falcon 1 and we got to get the Falcon 9 and we have to be able to prove that we can deliver stuff to space stations in orbit. And then we can do this. And we got the big, you know, starship that they're doing. He knows is that that with rocketry you can't just jump from nothing to something because of the risk there's actually real risk things blow up you know um but you know it's like where did, where is that same sort of sense with 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 autonomous vehicles so what we say is like okay thinking big is great having a direction having a goal having a vision is great but the next thing you need to do is start small and you need to iterate often so the mantra is think big start small and iterate often and what you should promise is you might say the you could tell what the vision is. You could say the vision is generally intelligent machines. The vision is fully self-driving vehicles. The vision is, you know, uh, chatbots that will actually understand everything you have to say. Whatever the vision is. But what I'm going to promise you, the promise is not the vision. This is where people make the mistake. The promise is not the vision. The promise are the small steps. I will promise you. I will tell you where we're going. But I will promise you tomorrow that I will give you this. I will give you automatic lane keeping. I will give you uh, adaptive cruise control. I will give you warning systems and safety systems because this I can promise you today. This I can promise and this I can deliver. And it may not be perfect in the first iteration, but give me 10, 20, 30 iterations and my promise will be delivered. And that's promising and delivering. It's not over-promising and under-delivering, right? And I think if everybody had that sort um, sort of healthy perspective, which is that it's okay to say, that we want bots that will do inventory scanning. But maybe the first step is a cart that a human pushes along and it only does one thing. Maybe it's just a, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a checker to basically see that if the things you think you have in stock really are in stock. And all it does is it just says, I think you might be low on something or there may be a mismatch or why is this misshelved? There's no autonomous nothing. There's a person pushing the cart along. But man, you can promise that. You can deliver and you can see very quickly whether or not there truly is an ROI. Is it worth it? It also simplifies your project planning. You don't have to solve so many hard problems all at once. 
you can just try to solve one problem, computer vision problem, <laughs> actually a computer vision counting problem, which is actually honestly very successful. People have done computer vision counting very successful. You can go out and you can even find models that are available practically for free, where you could say, count all of the you know buttons in this image and it'll do it. It'll do counting for you very inexpensively, right? So I don't know. I don't know how, how, how much deeper we can go on this topic, but that that's basically the underlying root cause, I think, for a lot of this thing is just people having stars in their eyes and promising those stars and not realizing that the promise is not the stars. The promise is tomorrow. The vision is the stars, right? Exactly. So, you know, that hopefully you've learned something from this podcast. As we said, we'll link to all of the other podcasts in our AI failure series, as well as additional ones that we talked about, you know, the AI winters one that we have done um, and a few others, because it's important, you know, go back, re-listen to this. We've gotten some incredible feedback from our listeners. So thanks so much for reaching out, letting us know how much you've enjoyed this, this AI failure series and how much you've learned from it. Uh, you know, like we said, go back, re-listen to some of them. As always, we're here for questions. You can always reach out to us at cognolytica.com, C-O-G-N-I-L-Y-T-I-C-A.com. Um, because it, you know, we do like hearing from you and we like we, we like to help as well. So, you know, don't struggle in silence. That's what we always say. Don't suffer in silence or struggle in silence. Please reach out. There are methodologies and best practices for doing AI right, including CPMAI methodology, which we are big advocates for. Um, you know, you can get you and your team trained on that. It really is inexpensive, especially when you see how much money and resources folks are investing in AI projects that ultimately fail. This is really just a little drop in the bucket. You can go to courses.cognolytica.com if you're interested in learning more and reading more about CPMAI methodology as well. But, you know, as I mentioned, thank you so much for all of our listeners that have reached out. We do love to hear from you. Also, if you can, please make sure to rate us and our podcast on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. We always love to get feedback on the AI Today podcast, and we definitely do check it out. So please do make sure to rate us, like I said, on iTunes or any of your favorite podcast platforms. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next episode. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolitica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. <laughs>